Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, we are hitting the seven seas in our wettest podcast episode yet. There's a drought on in California, so we've got to hydrate the West Coast somehow. We'll be chatting about the greatest pirate in the world. And no, it's not Blackbeard. It's not even a man, actually. She had a fleet that was larger than many of the legitimate navies at the time. She had thousands of ships and tens of thousands of men under her command. And she ruled them all with an iron fist. She had a strict code of discipline that was enforced. And we'll be talking with someone who has sailed the seven seas himself. But in this instance, it's actually more accurate to say that he floated on the sea thousands of miles from California to Hawaii on a raft made of plastic bottles and part of an airplane. I thought it was an unsinkable boat. You know, that many bottles, you got to pop each one to make it sink. And I didn't account for, you know, waves, a lot bigger waves. And uh, it's interesting, the ocean began to twist the caps off the bottle. So day three, our, our biggest storm, we had easily, I'd say, 10-foot waves max and 50-knot winds. And the first night, I step out of the airplane and I step into water. So we sunk 18 inches on day three. That's when I called my wife and I said, hey, babe, we're sinking. If that's a little too much water for you, I'm sorry. We also have a list of the best books about floods coming out next week, too, on our website. But um, in the meantime, to dry yourself off a little bit after this episode, you can look at our drought-themed list of the driest books around. Not boring, but literally about the desert or droughts or the end of the world. Same diff. Check it out on our website, theamericanscholar.org. It's called 10 Books to Read and Not a Drop to Drink. Pretty fitting for the August that we've had so far. But back to the show. I'm pretty sure the pirates in our next segment would cut me if we didn't talk about them first. So more about those swashbucklers. You know the type. Tall, unbathed, peg-legged, probably sporting a parrot, and if you're lucky, actually Johnny Depp. But what probably doesn't come to mind is a woman. And that's something that our guest, Laura Sook Duncombe, wants to change. She's the author of Pirate Women, the princesses, prostitutes, and privateers who ruled the seven seas. 
It's the story of the women who have been sailing the ocean blue ever since it was blue, pretty much, both in history and in legend, and who not only sailed alongside their male counterparts, but in a lot of cases, commanded them. But hardly anybody talks about these female pirates, and they've been largely written out of history. Until now. Laura joined us in the studio to talk about her favorite pirates, including one who had a sword in one hand and a baby in the other. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So when we think of pirates, very clear one-legged images come to mind for most of Mm -hmm. us. Captain Hook, Blackbeard, Johnny Depp. But as your book shows, that's not really the heart of piracy. So how do you define a pirate? Well, a pirate to me, and this is a very broad definition of pirate, but uh, I think that who defines what a pirate is and who an outlaw is, is, you know, defined by the victors. And so that changes from generation to generation, place to place. But a pirate to me is someone who takes something that other people believe that they should not have, that the law believes that they should not have. So what might lead women to reach for the life of piracy? Well, I I think that women are frequently told that there are things that they can't have, that they're not allowed to have, places they're not allowed to be. And so I think this feeling of being uh, outside the law is is common, you know, not just in ancient piracy, but in, you know, in, in all women. And so the I, I can understand keenly the desire to reach out and grab something that is not traditionally... Um, allowed uh, for women. So, you know, and of course, you know, there's the money, the adventure, but um, I think really the heart of it is a desire for freedom to be able to be in charge of your own destiny and do the things that you want to do. And there's one really provocative chapter title in your book. It's the most successful pirate of all time. And it wasn't Blackbeard. No, it's not. Uh, so the most successful pirate of all time, and I've had some people, you know, sort of dispute this claim, but I'm going to stand by it, uh, was a, a pirate from China named Cheng Sao. And Cheng Sao came from uh, a brothel and she married a, a you know, small time pirate, uh, Cheng Yi, and the two of them sort of took the political movements of the time to unify the sort of band of uh, pirates, a little pirate confederation. And then when Cheng Yi died uh, in 1807, she took over the whole thing. And uh, she had a fleet that was larger than many of the legitimate navies at the time. She had thousands of ships and tens of thousands of men under her command. And she ruled them all with an iron fist. She had a strict code of discipline that was enforced on the ship um, where infractions were punished by death. She commanded absolute loyalty. And by all accounts, she got it because of the incredible amount of plunder that they were able to take and the success of the pirating venture. You know, people say you don't argue with results. And uh, the pirates of Cheng Sao's crew were handsomely rewarded. When she negotiated a surrender with the Chinese government uh, because she realized they weren't going to be able to pirate forever and that um, it would be better to go out on top, she was unstoppable. The, the Chinese didn't know what to do with her. They, they reached out for foreign aid, which they were very loath to do to the Portuguese and the English to stop her and weren't able to do it. So 
she came to the negotiating table and said, you know, here's my terms. And she got everything she asked for, which included a prominent position in the military for her new husband, um, the ability to retire and maintain some of her own fleet and basically uh, buyouts for her crew. They were There was a fund set up to help her pirates transition into civilian life paid for by the government. And so... When Chinese pirates went out, they retired basically on the government dime, which uh, is really unparalleled to any anything else that I've ever found of uh, pirate surrender. You know, Woods Rogers had a very small time program um, in the Caribbean, but nothing on this scale and nothing with this much, um, you know, treasure coming out of it. And so I, I defy anyone to come up with a pirate who was able to accomplish as much and command as many as as she did during her pirating career. So she's amazing. Super. (laughs) I loved reading her story. And especially because she led kind of an unconventional life, too. I mean, she was a female pirate, but she did live a little unconventionally. And she also outlawed rape, right, on her fleet? Yeah. So... That was a part of her code, um, that that raping on ships was punishable by death. Consensual sex was also something that needed, you know, basically a a permission slip. um, And it was all part of the control for her. Um, She wanted to make sure that, you know, the men under her command were able to sail without distractions and that they were focused on their work and um, that the treatment of the female captives um, was not going to interfere with her goals and her mission. Um, I imagine, I mean, this is just pure supposition on my part, but, you know, spending a part of her life in a brothel that she would have been very aware of unwanted advances that you know men can make and um, maybe wanted to spare her captives uh, that same uh, sort of situation that perhaps she or you know some of her compatriots in the brothel had experienced. So Chang Yi Sao was sailing around in the 1800s right a couple decades after the golden age of piracy but we've got stories from Homer to Herodotus and even among the Vikings who may or may not be considered pirates depending on who you ask but I was really surprised to learn how far back the history of pirates goes and how far back we have records of female pirates. Um, How did you learn about these ancient buccaneers and did you have to do a lot of reading between the lines? Yeah, I mean, once you start looking, they're almost everywhere, but they are, you know, tucked into other stories. They're called by other names. They're sort of smooshed in with tales of male pirates. Um, but I like to say as long as there has been a sea and something to steal, there have been pirates. And as long as there have been male pirates, there have been women pirates. So I did a lot of research. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress. It's one of the blessings of being based in D.C. I did a lot of reading of you know, when you go on vacation to a tropical island and you see a gift shop with a bunch of like Jamaica me crazy t-shirts and like one sad dusty bookshelf and you're like, who buys those books? Like I buy those books. And so um, a lot of the research for this book came out of my personal collection of just books that I picked up over the years about uh, piracy and local lore. And because records are hard to keep track of, particularly of non-law-abiding citizens, it's not like pirates were, you know, filing their taxes quarterly. So um Local stories are frequently the best resources that we have on these pirates or the closest to primary sources we have. So one thing you write about a lot is that women are sometimes left out of pirate stories or they're in one version of a story but not in another or the endings change. So why do you think we haven't really heard of them or their lives haven't been recorded that thoroughly? 
I've been thinking a lot about that. I thought a lot about that as I was writing. And then, you know, in the months since the book has come out, I've gotten sort of a lot of pushback from people saying, well, there just weren't that many. You know, it's not like we don't want to write about women. They're just not there, which to me sounds suspiciously like, well, we don't want to only publish white straight men, but they're just the ones who are writing the best books. I'm like, really? Really? Those are the only authors out there that matter? So... I don't think that it is malicious or intentional that women are left out of the narrative, but I think sometimes people just don't look for uh, things that are outside of their own experience. And the fact of the matter is a lot of history has been recorded through the ages by, you know, white, straight men. And the idea of a woman on the sea is just outside their realm of understanding. And so they don't look for them and they don't find them. Um, but they are there. They were there in every age and every place across the world where piracy occurred, which was the big driving reason for me to put this book together, to just sort of, as a woman, to find this sisterhood of piracy that had been swept off to the side unconsciously all this time. And what's really interesting, too, is that in some of the earlier women pirates, especially that you talk about, their stories are different from era to era or from poet to poet. And Sometimes they have weirdly tragic endings like a suicide or and then she lived mm. and took care of so-and-so's sons. Uh-huh. Why do that? I, the idea of a liberated woman is always very threatening to people. Um, it's it's kind of dangerous to feel like a woman can make her own plans. Um, I mean, I'm being a bit facetious, of course, um, but... Many of the authors who put down these tales had an agenda in mind. They wanted to use them as morality stories. I'm thinking of uh, the Christian missionaries putting down the Viking stories and um, the uh, ancient Greeks writing about pirates of antiquity. That Their purpose was to show people what happens when the social order is violated, that, you know, disorder and chaos ensues, but then you know, the women are brought back in line or they commit suicide, that, you know, the order is maintained. The purpose of putting some of those stories together was as a morality story. And so I think rather than chronicling the stories faithfully, the idea was, at least in some of the earliest authors, to use these women as examples of what happens when things go wrong. I think the most dramatic example of women pirates being used that way is actually one of the earliest known pirates that you write about, Artemisia I of Halicarnassus. There are a bunch of alternate endings to her story, many of which fill that bad girl goes good plot. And there's a lot of questions about whether any of those endings are actually true. But it's pretty clear it's meant as kind of a warning to any uppity queen who might think about crossing a neighboring empire. But you do write about some other reasons why historians might talk about lady pirates, like two pretty famous women who actually did exist, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Can you talk about them? Who were they? Yes, absolutely. Um, those are pirates that most everyone knows because of their inclusion in Captain Johnson's The General History of the Pirates, first published in 1723. So they were included one suspects to sell books you know there were pictures of them and their names are really big on the title page and uh, it was a, a sensation that these women had been tried for piracy and we have their trial transcripts um, we have you know accounts by people who are captured by them so these two women uh, took different routes to piracy 
Um, but ended up, life is sometimes stranger than fiction, on the same ship, on um, Calico Jack, nickname of Jack Rackham's uh, ship and his crew. Uh, Anne Bonny was his lover, and Mary Reed they took on later. So these two women pirated with the men, um, and by all accounts, as enthusiastically and robustly as, as the men did, um, a popular story goes that when the um, their ship was finally captured by the authorities, that all of the men were down below drinking, making merry, playing cards, and Anne and Mary were on deck uh, watching, and the two of them put up a fight, um, a vicious fight to keep the ship from falling into enemy's hands, and they're calling down into the hold, you know, guys, come up, we, we, we're fighting for our lives here, and... Um, the two of them were the only ones able to mount a defense, but they managed to take out a fair amount of um, the opposition before they were ultimately captured. So um, they're just, their lives are fascinating. They both have really interesting backstories and just what they were able to do in the short amount of time that they were pirating is really remarkable. For some thrilling tales about dashing ladies, none of whom you would want to cross on a dark alley, you can pick up Laura Sook Duncombe's Pirate Women, which has a pretty extensive reading list in the back for more detailed histories of the pirates she talks about. I really enjoyed the story of the three jeans, for instance, who were running around Brittany, France, and England well before the Golden Age. And I can safely say that the book is uh, arguably the best gift to give a budding pirate. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to. Our next guest isn't quite a pirate, though he did sail the ocean in a craft that you would not believe was seaworthy, the junk raft. Marcus Erickson is an environmentalist and activist who spent a lot of his life at sea, documenting the fate of our trash once it lands in the ocean. Synthetic plastic was first invented in 1907, and its use really took off during the Second World War. Ever since, we've been trying to figure out just how much plastic is in the world— And a new paper published earlier this month puts the figure at 8.3 billion tons of new plastic since 1950, half of which was manufactured since 2007. That's just a decade. And we're not slowing down anytime soon. At the rate we're going, we're expected to hit 1 billion tons of new plastic per year by 2050. So where does this plastic go? Well, 9% was recycled and 12% incinerated, which leaves about 5 billion tons unaccounted for, sitting in landfills or floating out at sea in the giant plastic patch in the ocean. That floating plastic, on the surface, wrapped around coral, or in small pieces in the guts of birds and the fish we eat, is the subject of Marcus Erickson's new book, Junkraft. Marcus is joining us from Culver City, California. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So at the heart of your book is the story of how you sailed from California to Hawaii on a raft you built yourself, which you called the junk. But this was no ordinary vessel, was it? It wasn't. Um, it, it was aptly named because it was made from from junk. It was myself, uh, Anna Cummins, my wife, and uh, Joel Pascal. The three of us built this boat in two and a half months using 15,000 plastic bottles. We took 24 sailboat masts, went to every junkyard in Southern California and found these broken sailboats, barred the masts, made a square deck with the bottles underneath, and for a cabin, we chose the fuselage of a a Cessna 310 aircraft and tied it all together. Nothing bolted because oceans kind of pull things apart. All tied together and called it junk. So that wasn't your first draft, though. It was your 15th. Uh, Did this journey out at sea go any better than the other 14? 
Uh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd, I'd made a bunch of rafts prior, you know, to this. And, you know, this, it goes all the way back to 1991 when I was in the, in the first Gulf War. I was in the Marines back in the day. And uh, I remember sitting beneath all those burning oil wells. And I was sitting in a foxhole saying to another guy next to me, if we survive this war, I'm going to raft the Mississippi River if I make it home. And I did. I took a 232 two-liter pop bottles, made a raft, and I spent five months on the Mississippi River. And I, I thought it was an unsinkable boat. You know, that many bottles, you got to pop each one to make it sink. And made this raft, spent my time in the river, and then when I met Anna Cummins, uh, became my wife later, uh, we just, I, I thought, okay, I want to build this mega raft. And we did it. Built this raft, headed out to sea from Los Angeles. We got towed 60 miles offshore, and I didn't account for, you know, waves, a lot bigger waves. And uh, it's interesting. The ocean began to twist the caps off the bottles. So day three, our our biggest storm, we had easily, I'd say, 10-foot waves max and 50-knot winds. And the first night, I step out of the airplane, and I step into water. So we sunk 18 inches on day three. That's when I called my wife and I said, hey, babe, we're sinking. And she was enjoying, you know, a latte in Santa Monica following the journey, land-based mission control. And she jumped to her feet. She chartered a dive boat and met me with a bucket of glue. (laughs) So what we did, we basically took out all the bottles one at a time, poured out the water, glued the cap back on. And I kept doing that for the next two months as we sort of hobbled toward Hawaii. Wow. So why did you pick the route from California to Hawaii? Well, I had been in in the North Pacific, the subtropical gyre, twice before, studying plastics with my mentor, Captain Charles Moore. And so I understood the currents, and I knew the currents will take us to Hawaii. It's it's where it takes our trash, leaving the West Coast United States. You know, Japan's trash, China's trash comes to us, you know, due east. Our trash goes due west. And it makes this big circular system called a gyre. And the North Atlantic has one. They're both clockwise, massive rotations of currents. In the Southern Hemisphere, you have three of these, South Pacific, South Atlantic, Indian Ocean. Those are reverse currents, counterclockwise, big, massive gyres. It's like a giant whirlpool where trash collects. So I knew if we launched from California, uh, from Los Angeles, where I live now, that eventually we would get to, to Hawaii. Now, I totally underestimated the time. <laughs> I I thought, you know, maybe three to four weeks, five weeks if we're unlucky. Thirteen weeks later, we land in Waikiki. Wow. So did you sail through the gyre? Were you caught up in those currents at all? What it's What is it like to sail through this trash heap? Well, it's interesting. You know, it, it really is not a trash heap. And that's been sort of a, a misconception that... I would say some sensationalized stories have communicated to the public for the last, you know, 15, almost 20 years. These idea, these giant patches, these floating islands of trash. But I would say it's worse. Like when you're sailing out there, you might see there goes a, a fishing buoy. There's a bottle. Wait a few hours. There's some tangled fishing line. And occasionally you come across a big tangled mass, maybe a half ton mass of, of tangled fishing net. Uh, but it's pretty sparse and spread out. But if you stop and look down, what you see is an unending trail 
of small particles, this microplastic, broken down pieces that once were buckets and crates and bottles and bags and forks and knives and straws and cup lids and all the stuff that we use once on land and throw away gets the ocean and shreds. So instead of calling it a patch, what we suggest, and we've seen the same thing in all five gyres, I've been to all five, what we suggest is to change the metaphor and think of think of a smog, like the air pollution over our biggest cities, over like Beijing right now. You look up and you can barely see the sun through this haze of small particles of pollution, widely distributed, that carry their own burden of toxicity. I can tell you in the oceans, it's kind of the same way. You have, by our estimates, trillions of particles of plastics, all the size of a grain of rice or smaller, that are in our nets wherever we go, anywhere on Earth. In the last year, I've been to the equator and to, to the Arctic. We find these small micro and nanoplastics. So if you were to, like, scrape the top of the ocean in one of these smogged areas, what would you find? How much would be there? So it varies wildly. It is this kaleidoscope of small particles. You might drag your net for, let's say, two or three miles. It's about a football field of area. And in that, you might get, like, fill your hand with rice, multicolored small particles. That's kind of typical. They can be from a handful to a tablespoon over that, over one football field of area. But then keep in mind that the North Pacific has over 9 million football fields in that gyre system alone. So in total, it adds up to trillions and trillions of bits and pieces. When you get closer to coastlines, you're finding newer plastics. Like I never find plastic bags or styrofoam cups in the middle of the oceans, but near coastlines, I do. And as you get away from them, those objects are torn, they're bitten by fish, they're shredded, they're brittle by sunlight, they begin to to shred rather quickly. Yeah, I like the metaphor of smog because that conveys to how we're consuming it, not just us, but also the things we eat, like fish and birds. Um, when you were at sea, did you slice open any fish and, and find that your dinner was full of plastic? I did. I'm glad you asked that because it gets to the heart of the question. There are two issues here. There's the our morality uh, behind polluting wild space. And I was amazed. I mean, I was in the mid-Pacific, and I was a 1,000 miles from land in all directions. And there were no other vessels within hundreds of miles or more of where I was positioned. Yet I was seeing our trash. It's like if you go hiking, if you climb a mountain and get to the top, and a plastic bag blows by, it takes something away from you. So... There was that issue of finding trash. But I remember at one point, we were really low on food. And Joel and I, we had seen these fish that were born under our raft, you know, in the first few weeks. Two months later, they're maybe a foot long, as big as my shoe. And we, we began to fish these fish. And we caught one. We filleted the fish, put the fillets in a pan. We're about to cook it. And I opened the stomach. In fact, the stomach was so... Uh, expanded as soon as I touched with the knife it popped open and these 17 particles jumped out at me and I realized you know here I am middle of nowhere in the wildest space I've ever been to my life and our trash follows us it's in the food that I was about to eat so we have seen I think in the last 10 years we've gone from a few hundred species known to to ingest our trash, to now well over a thousand. So the interactions of marine life and and this plastic trash 
I think it's safe to say that the entire oceanic biosphere is impacted by our junk. Right. Not to mention the invasive species that can tack onto plastic, too, and travel the same journey you did from California to Hawaii or even further afield. Exactly. And, you know, that's something that, that we haven't seen or has not been observed in the history of life on Earth. Um, you know, the, the rafts that exist, you know, seaweed can carry uh, things. So can coconuts and logs. Like in the north, uh, northwest Pacific, Seattle and, and Oregon, big logs that go to sea, they will rarely wash up in Hawaii and they'll never make it to Japan. So there hasn't been this, this, this widespread ability of life to go from one continent to another until plastic. Now, organisms can move from one place to another. When I was with Captain Charles Moore, we once found a fishing crate, like, like a milk crate, that was upside down uh, between Hawaii and California on the United States, the North American side of the Pacific. In this crate upside down was sheltered a coastal Japanese fish. Had been living in this overturned cage, uh, protected by it, for 5,000 miles of drifting. Wow. So, yes, plastics create a highway for invasive species to go from one continent to another. Wow. I mean, it's it's crazy because these islands of trash, however misnamed or sensationalist they were, this, this publicity happened in the early 2000s. But we've known about the massive amounts of plastic in the ocean since the 1970s. So plastic pollution has been getting way more publicity recently from your book, from the news, from scientific institutions. But what took us so long to start paying attention? Why has it taken decades for this focus? I think the industries that make plastic, and and, and they've been very good at defending their industry, um, much the way, you know, big tobacco has defended smoking. Uh, big plastic has done has done the same. If you think back to the 1970s, when I was a kid, there were these campaigns uh, from groups like Keep America Beautiful, Ocean Conservancy. So you had ads like the the Crying Indian campaign, where a Native American saw a plastic bag go by, and he would shed a tear, and the tagline would be "People cause pollution." And and ads like "Give a hoot, don't pollute, don't be a dirty bird." These these ads effectively put the onus of the problem into the sphere of the public for, for, for causing litter. And then it put the responsibility on the taxpayer and our cities to manage waste, to manage plastic. And it took all the attention away from the design, the initial design of the product. And that's where I think it's been, been a long time for the public to realize, okay, industry must take its fair share of responsibility. Of course, litter is wrong and, and, and should be penalized. And of course, we as taxpayers have to manage our, our trash in our communities. But some products, the single-use throwaways, the bags, the plastic bags, the straws, there's a long list of things that we find they're ubiquitous in the environment. The best waste management strategies can't capture them efficiently. Those, those products, they need to shift to a more more sustainable material. Go back to paper straws, reusable bags. These things, they existed and they were in our culture 50 years ago. They can come back. They work. They don't work in our society. Now, I, I, I should stop here and say I'm not anti-plastic. I mean, plastic is great for technologies. It's in the iPhone that I use. It's in hospitals. It's, it's safety equipment. Half the space shuttle was plastic. It has its place. It's a good material. 
but the single-use throwaway culture must shift. There's a need for a design revolution here. Right. Yeah. And it's not the only place where we see this, this emphasis on individual actions rather than on corporate responsibility. Um, but if we think about something like global warming, uh, that makes no sense because, as another study from this summer points out, just 100 companies are responsible for 71 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions since 1988. What do you see as the way forward for, I guess, enforcement of, of regulations on corporations? Well, I think uh, the, the solution, you, you're seeing grassroots mobilization in a big way. Uh, there are few coalitions have formed. The Plastic Pollution Coalition, uh, P4, is called the Plastic Pollution Policy Project, and the Break Free from Plastics Movement. These combined are over 800 organizations worldwide that are aligned on values, and they're pushing for, for policies that are ending this throwaway culture and just holding you know, um, industry's feet to the fire to participate in the solutions, even if it means making less plastic, which it does. Source reduction has to happen for these problematic products. So the, that's one trend we're seeing. We're also seeing alignment coming from the zero waste movement. There, are, there's, there's a huge surge of, of communities and cities trying to become or becoming more resilient, becoming less vulnerable to issues of, of pollution and, and food and water security and, and energy production. So you're seeing this idea of urban resilience. And in terms of plastics, it's coming strong on the idea of zero waste. There was a school here in Los Angeles uh, that we had visited for a couple years in a row talking about plastics. And the students and their teacher were so fired up that the students, they took every styrofoam tray they used in one week. And these were thousands of trays you know, from hundreds of students. And they, they punched a hole in the bottom, washed them off, and they strung them all together with a piece of string. And they hung this giant rectangular snake of styrofoam trays in the tree. The principal said, go ahead. And hung there for two years until the superintendent of LA Unified School District came to their school and said, okay, we're going to stop using these foam trays. In fact, the entire district, over 900 schools, is going to stop using styrofoam trays. And they made an economic case for it. What LAUSD was able to do, LA Unified School District, along with Chicago, New York, Miami, and two others, they combined their market share and they found a vendor and they said, if you can compete with the price of styrofoam, we will buy your compostable paper trays. And these districts, which are thousands of schools, made the switch in a matter of months. All the solutions are out there. It's just giving them market share and giving them a place. I do not endorse setting sail on a raft made of plastic bottles anytime soon unless you are a professional plastic bottle sailor. But I would recommend both reading Marcus Erickson's new book, Junk Raft, and junking the plastic forks you pick up with your takeout food. Maybe also the straws. It's really not that weird to cart around your own utensils, especially if you get takeout a lot. I carry around a pair of chopsticks I got in Asia. They are made from the aluminum of a safely dismantled bomb that the U.S. dropped on Laos in the 1970s. It's a great conversation starter. Plus, it means I don't use a lot of plastic. So one more thing before we go. 
In a little over a week, we are going to have the first total solar eclipse in North America in decades. If this is the first time you're hearing about this, firstly, I am shocked. And secondly, I'm sad because the odds of getting a hotel room or even a spot at a campground in one of the totality regions is going to be pretty tough. But wherever you are, it's still going to be really cool. And you can learn more about the history of eclipses, including how the Babylonians marked every eclipse with a king-swapping ritual and human sacrifice, on a podcast episode from earlier this year. Number 16, Out of the Closets and Into the Courts. That's it for Smarty Pants. Next time, we've got a little episode on two things that are sometimes at odds, religion and science. And if that memo from an ex-Google employee about uh, women's inferiority made your blood boil, you'll get a special kick out of that episode. Until then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.